Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we foolishly try to cram in an entire decade in the life of one of the most iconic pop artists of the 20th century into a mere hour and a half. It's not going to be an hour and a half warning. <laughs> but we try. <laughs> Four hours of Weird Al. You guessed it, folks. <laughs> I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to express himself, not repress himself. I'm Seth, your host most likely to like Hanky Panky, nothing like a good spanky. And I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host, most likely to know a place where you can get away. It's called a dance floor. <laughs> you, you're very familiar, yes. I am not familiar. <laughs> that's also known as Seth's apartment. Where Seth, that's yeah. the place where he can get away. Mm-hmm. So listeners, are you comfortable? <laughs> Do you have food and drink readily accessible? Get your slankets ready. <laughs> We're going on a journey. Have you packed a change of clothing and clean underwear? <laughs> a day bag at least. If you haven't already, you may want to message your loved ones and tell them <laughs> that you are listening to the Madonna episode of the When We Were Young podcast. So don't be alarmed if they don't hear from you for a little while. <laughs> this is like eating a really big edible. We just like hope you don't have plans anytime soon. And this is just like a decade of her career. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is like a quarter at most. <laughs> yeah. You might wonder what iconic Madonna album we might choose to cover <laughs> or perhaps a film from her career. We are going to cover everything between 19. 19- 90 and I guess we kind of stop around Ray of Light, right? We don't go all the way through 2000, but it's pretty much a decade and it's about 50 years in the life of any other recording artist. It, it took almost that long to get through it all. Yeah. 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 So, I, I think we did that because we couldn't decide which album because each one of us got into Madonna in a different album. So we decided, let's just do all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all at once. And we were all like, great idea. Uh, we were probably really drunk. <laughs> Again, why did we decide this? <laughs> yeah, still well, trying to what, what were we thinking? It. So we're about to do so much fucking Madonna right now that we do not expect any survivors. So buckle up, everyone. We chose 90s Madonna because we were probably aware of 80s Madonna, but that's really where we were growing up and really experiencing her as an artist. And we're also coming up on the 20th anniversary of Madonna's multi-Grammy winning Ray of Light. So it seemed like a good time to revisit that. And Madonna's just like a bowl of fish hooks. So it's like if you grab like one album, they all just come out like... Everything she does is very, very connected in a, in a strange way. Like, I've noticed that a lot of her lyrics harken back to other lyrics, and it's just like, she's a lay. You can't. You can't. <laughs> she's a lay. She's a lay. You can't have we're, just one. Chris, and, we're already getting into that denigration of her character <laughs> this early in the episode. Come on. <laughs> a lay's potato chip, I should have specified. Yeah. Madonna is a potato chip, guys. I believe she's a lay was the original title of the sex book. <laughs> So we're going to structure this episode kind of going through the albums and allowing each of us to kind of share the Madonna that we kind of most experienced or identified with. So my opening question for you guys is, before these albums that we're discussing today, who was Madonna to you? Like, how did you perceive her? Well, before 1990, I was, you know, seven or younger. I think that I just knew her as a really famous person. At that point in 1990, she was already a superstar. So she's just one of the people that's just like, that's a famous celebrity. (laughs) It's already a given um, that she's like this iconic presence already. Um, And that was just 1990. I think she came out in like the mid 80s, Mm -hmm. like with Lucky Star and Borderline. Yeah. 
I started being a fan of Madonna, starting with I'm Breathless, because that is the first album that my mom and I really like both listened to in the car a lot, and we both really liked it. She was a huge Madonna fan. My mom loves pop music, and she, of course, loves Madonna. And that's the album that we would both sing together in the car. And that's when I think I started being aware of Madonna more of like, hey, I'm a fan of hers versus like, oh, she's just this person that is this presence in the world. Yeah, I remember like she was very much a media presence at that time. She always <laughs> kind of was, but especially at that time, she was kind of known for a lot of antics. You didn't necessarily have to know her that well as a recording artist to know like who Madonna was and like what her general image was. I heard Madonna's earliest singles, like a Holiday, Lucky Star, especially Borderline. Like I knew and loved Borderline as a song. When I was like a teeny, teeny, tiny kid, I had no idea of Madonna. I had no conception of her or knowledge of her as a character in pop culture whatsoever until Dick Tracy came out and until Vogue came out as a single. That was the first Madonna song that anyone ever introduced to me as a Madonna song. So I only like came to learn that Holiday, Lucky Star, and Borderline were Madonna songs, but Vogue was the first one where I like knew it as a Madonna song and saw the music video along with it and finally started to get an idea of who this person was. That's really interesting because I feel like most people become aware of her through image and absolutely and the celebrity angle. Every video that she has basically is like projecting some kind of image as well. I think it's kind of rare to experience Madonna without that and just hear the music and like have that be your only knowledge of her for a while. That's interesting. Yeah, like especially now and especially going through the albums, I feel kind of lucky that I got introduced to her that way. I really appreciated her for that music and that image like came way later. So I remember at some point thinking that I was really cool because I remembered seeing the Like a Prayer video like when it came out and that was my entry point to Madonna and I knew that I was like really into it. I have this memory of watching it and like like dancing or singing along or something and my mom like being like, oh, you like this, right? Like it was the first like pop song that I responded to and like really was aware of. I'm sure I heard music before, but I think this was the first moment where I latched onto a song and like actually thought about it and like responded to it. It's possible that this was a Pepsi commercial and not the video. I was going to say, <laughs> did you then reach for a carbonated beverage? <laughs> yeah, I did not realize that there was a Pepsi commercial for a long time. And I just thought I had great taste. <laughs> <laughs> just like another frosty beverage. Yeah, I actually was more of a Coke drinker. So even that taste didn't work out because I feel like I remember burning crosses, but I might just be confused fleeting memories but yeah would they have the burning crosses in the pepsi they commercial? did not yeah they wouldn't so, right <laughs> i don't know if somehow i stumbled upon mtv i would like to think that i was i don't know cool enough to have latched onto the real video instead of the pepsi commercial but who knows what so what year was this because i was trying to remember i do remember seeing like a prayer and seeing the video for it really early on but i don't i don't think it, it was, was a big before event, Vogue. Right? yeah it was big, 1989 big tv event yeah Oh, so no, I definitely would have seen that after. Yeah, so that feeling is really burned into me, even though I was very young. I was six, I guess. And like, life really is a mystery at that point. Yeah, I mean, I was just like blown away that anything could sound that good. I was like, music, yeah, like, <laughs> this is great. I had a revelation, and it's kind of funny that it's 
to a song that's literally about that, about having kind of that ecstatic. Uh, religious ecstatic yeah. experience to a song and kind of awakening to that. So I don't know. It all worked out. <laughs> Madonna Louise Veronica Ciccone was born August 16th, 1958 in the suburbs of Detroit. It is not a stage name, as many people probably think it is. She was actually christened that. Veronica, I believe, was added on as, like, after her baptism or something. Mm-hmm. But it's all her, so they were really laying the cards out for her to <laughs> be a diva. <laughs> yeah, she could have gone any number of ways, but, I, like, I feel like Madonna is definitely the strongest one. What if her name was, like, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> or Chaconi? <laughs> or if she just changed her name from that to, like, something, like, Sarah Jane, like, yeah. and recorded <laughs> songs under that name. <laughs> She was actually named after her mother, who died of breast cancer when Madonna was five. She was known as a child for showing boys her underwear (laughs) at school. So So she was herself. She was an exhibitionist from the start. (laughs) Yeah. But she was also a straight A student in high school, as well as a cheerleader. And she was studying dance in college when she dropped out and decided to move to New York City in 1978. She worked at a Dunkin' Donuts. She was mugged at gunpoint and raped at knife point, posed nude for art classes, and worked as a backup dancer. And she was in a couple of bands before she was a solo artist, including The Breakfast Club and Emmy, and lived for a time in an abandoned synagogue with her boyfriend. (laughs) So she had a pretty fucking eventful (laughs) few years in New York, even before she was Madonna. Madonna. Late 70s was not a great time to (laughs) live in New York. I mean, maybe for artistic expression, but not for safety. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to give you guys a taste of her very earliest music before even the songs that Seth was introduced to, which were her first big singles. Was that Madonna or Roseanne? (laughs) Was that humans or Muppets? I am full of questions. I think it was a synthesis of all of them. (laughs) Yeah, the answer was yes (laughs) to all of them. That was Madonna as a backup singer. They actually, like, turned up her vocals when she became famous and released that. She probably was not terribly pleased about it. Uh, But yeah, so she was doing, let's say, not iconic music. (laughs) What, What was that called? Uh, we Are the Gods. Oh, oh, was it called We Are the Gods? Yes. Um, is that on the Immaculate Collection? I didn't listen. Oh, yeah. I think it's right after Like a Virgin. Okay. <laughs> so fortunately, uh, Madonna moved on. <laughs> and uh, the producer, the German producer that produced that song, did did not so much. Oh, was the producer of that German? I, again, I couldn't yeah. tell. Otto von Wernher? <laughs> wow. That was 1981. So a mere two years later, Madonna fared much better. So I thought one way that we could go through the 80s with Madonna was just to look at the Immaculate Collection, because that was released at the very beginning of the 90s in 1990 and has pretty much all of her big hits up until that point. The first few tracks are Holiday, Lucky Star, and Borderline that are all from Madonna's self-titled debut in 1983. Seth, you liked those songs, right? I still fucking love those songs. I think they're like a lot of parts of Madonna's catalog weighed down by production, both in terms of just when they were recorded, but also like the reliance on like digital synthesized stuff. Um, But 
song-wise, like, those are really, really, really strong songs. Um, and, like, Borderline, I almost see as kind of like a, a almost like a classic oldies track. Like, to me, and um, same with uh, Holiday, is, like, a lot of her best music, like, could have been recorded in the 50s or 60s by a girl group and still have just been as strong and fun and poppy. Yeah, I could see that. The next album was a year later, Like a Virgin, where I think two of her most iconic songs come from, Like a Virgin and Material Girl. It's hard to say definitively what Madonna's like most iconic songs are, but those have always kind of stuck to her, like no matter what else she's doing. I watched more than necessary for this podcast. <laughs> I watched a lot of her tours because mm-hmm. every single one of her tours... I think since the Blonde Ambition tour, I'm not sure if there was taped recordings before then, but I've watched everything from Blonde Ambition on and pretty much every single tour she she covers Like a Virgin. Yeah, so it's her biggest yeah, hit. That seems to be like the one that she feels obligated to each time do something different with it and include it in her set list. Yeah, she's said that she was sick of that song. It was a long time ago. I don't know if she's maybe like gotten over it, but she kind of resented that song and Material Girl because she's known as the Material Girl now and she's trying to be ironic on that song, which I think is obvious. You know, if you listen to it, it's like not a... She's not being serious on that song, but yeah, she did kind of get branded that way from that song. Yeah, I mean, it's I. I don't think there's any way you could not get sick of it. It's like Radiohead and Creep. Like it's when there's one thing that's synonymous with your with you, like you have to get sick of it at a certain point. Yeah, and it was before she was really involved in like writing and producing her music, so she didn't, you know, put a lot of herself into that. Yeah, absolutely. The other tracks from that album are Into the Groove and then Crazy for You, which is actually from the soundtrack to Vision Quest in 1985. <laughs> I I. Just saw that, so I don't know what that is. The next album was True Blue in 1986, which was a partially a an ode to Sean Penn, a, a love album with the singles Live to Tell, Papa Don't Preach, Open Your Heart, and La Isla Bonita. Is Cherish on the Immaculate Collection? Yes. Okay. That's from Like a Prayer. Which oh, was is it? Oh, okay. 1989, so that had Like a Prayer, Express Yourself, and Cherish. I mean, these songs are all fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for the most part, they're all you could you could have probably Ila hum. Bonita, I would beg to differ. But you, I bet you that you could hum every single track on that compilation album. Yeah, I was actually talking to a friend last night who said that he bought the Immaculate Collection. That was his first Madonna album, and so he assumed that it was her first album. And he was like, wow, she had a hell of a first album. <laughs> <laughs> like, she should quit after that. Yeah. How are you going to top it? I really feel like even casual Madonna fans could sing a little bit of every single song. And I think that really shows how memorable they are. Even if you're not, like, a huge fan of each song, like, they're memorable for sure. Oh, yeah. No, I know most of these songs offhand. Yeah. There's a lot of greatest hits albums where there's kind of padding where you're like, yeah, this was a single, but it's not really like an iconic song. Like a lot of artists have maybe like four or five really iconic songs. And I think that these really pretty much across the board are like every single one of them worthy of being on a greatest hits album. Well, yeah, and I think beyond that, uh, Madonna's often been characterized as a singles artist, and I don't think that's a wrong thing to say. I mean, I think there is depth to some of her albums that obviously, thankfully, we'll be talking about. But I do think like her biggest strength has been in just indelible singles. 
Yeah, I think that's true because even as someone who considers themselves a fairly big Madonna fan, I had never heard a couple of those full albums, like True Blue and Like a Prayer. I listened to them for the first time for the podcast and was actually just kind of surprised the song True Blue, which actually was a single, but wasn't included on Immaculate Collection, and I don't think I've ever heard it. I ended up really liking it, and yet I was like, how did I not know that this was a song? She just has so much work that a lot of it can get lost if it's not, like, the top-tier stuff. So what you were just mentioning, Seth, kind of leads me to my overall thoughts of listening to these four albums, I'm Breathless, Erotica, Bedtime Stories, and Ray of Light. What I was expecting when we covered these albums was that I thought I would like at least one album from start to finish, and I was surprised that that didn't happen. I always considered Madonna a singles artist, and I thought doing a bit of a deeper dive would make me appreciate her albums more, and it really didn't. <laughs> um, I... I love her. <laughs> like, I mean, we can go a little bit more about her in general, but like, I think she's an exceptional artist, an exceptional performer, and an exceptional performance artist. And I love bits and parts of her in every single phase she's ever been in. But I was really surprised that her singles stand out so much in all of these albums, and the rest kind of feels like filler. I think that you wouldn't be missing anything to not listen to these albums start to finish. And I actually have never, outside of Confessions, and I think her MDNA album, I've never listened to one start to finish until this podcast, which I think is kind of um, weird because I would consider myself a Madonna fan, but I've never listened to True Blue all the way, Like a Virgin, like all of those albums. I've never listened to them all the way through. And just listening to these four, I'm just like, yeah, I don't think I really need to. <laughs> I don't know. I was just very surprised. I thought I would be blown away a little bit more. As far as like stuff to say at the top, like the experience of doing an actual dive into Madonna's albums was a thing I looked forward to more than I'm guessing my co-hosts would anticipate. Yes. I did not think that I you I thought would. you were going <laughs> to say more than us, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. But no, yes, that like, it, she was always one of those artists whose singles I really enjoyed a lot of times. Like, there's a point at which she dropped off and never really came back for me. But for a multiple decade-long stretch, she was a songwriter and singer who released gigantic mega-hit songs, a lot of which I really, really fucking enjoyed and dug. But I just never bought her album albums and never really considered her as like an album artist and i have to say like even with ray of light which was my favorite i have to agree with becky that she's an incredibly strong songwriter and she's amazing at picking collaborators at every stage of her career who help bring out the things in her music that she wants to pursue um but i think that she lacked an editor and lacks people who can tell her, oh, maybe the album can just be a track shorter and you can lose that track. So I own every Madonna album. From, Ever made. <laughs> no, but from Immaculate Collection on. So I've been really familiar with almost her entire 90s, which my big blind spot has been I'm Breathless, which we'll talk about in a moment. So I do know her as an album artist because I've heard these albums. I mean, I agree with you guys that she's much more known for her singles and her singles are the highlight of her career. Every album that she has, I think, is most notable for the singles. And I think that some of them have a lot of really interesting things that are not singles. But like, I wouldn't say don't listen to the singles, <laughs> just listen to the album cuts. For this podcast, I was really interested in going back into the 80s Madonna and I listened to every disc that she's 
released pretty much, like, for start to finish, which was a lot. <laughs> I started preparing for this in December. <laughs> of 2007, right after we had graduated. And I was still preparing for it today <laughs> at lunch, watching Madonna music videos and trying to find, you know, clips and information. And I've realized that you cannot finish preparing for a Madonna podcast. Oh, even if you watched every single music video, then you'd have to watch her VMA performances and all her TV performances and then her clips from movies. (laughs) Like, it's endless. Yeah, I mean... Her tour documentaries. It would take a year. Yeah. It would take a year just to watch all the Madonna stuff. Well, but Chris, I'm really curious, like, especially knowing that you're a Madonna fan, have these albums or other albums of hers been in, like, significant rotation for you in recent years? Like, when you listen to Madonna, normally do you listen to the singles do you listen to your favorite album how does that usually go for you i used to listen to the albums because i had them as cds so i used to listen to all of the albums that we're talking about except for i'm breathless so i did experience them as albums in recent years i didn't listen to the albums much but that was more because they were on cd and so i didn't have them readily available anymore but that's interesting so you did you would pop in the cds and listen to them yeah all the way through and so preparing for this podcast, I did that again for the first time in a long time because I kind of recently got Apple Music and was finally able to kind of listen through to albums again without, you know, having to pay for them uh, directly. Let's move on to the first album we're going to talk about, which is I'm Breathless, music from and inspired by the film Dick Tracy. Sooner or later you gonna be The three of us watched Dick Tracy together. That was a fun night. Was it? (laughs) I hadn't seen it in a long time. It was fun. (laughs) I'm Breathless was released May 22nd, 1990. The movie Dick Tracy released in theaters June 15th, 1990. Uh, The album was produced by Madonna, Patrick Leonard, Bill Bottrell, Kevin Gilbert, uh, Shep Pettibone, and with several songs written by Stephen Sondheim. Mandy Patankin and Warren Beatty provide guest vocals on the album. The album has a lot of different inspirations. Jazz, Broadway, swing, Madonna playing the role of a cabaret showgirl. She wanted all of the songs on the album to more or less feel like they could take place in the movie. And there are three tracks, actually more than three. I think three were written by Stephen Sondheim, and there was another one that was featured in the movie. The album was also inspired by her relationship with Warren Beatty at the time, who she was dating. The album debuted at number 44 on the Billboard 200 and peaked at number two. It was also a big hit all around the world in different countries. As far as reviews go, the album received nearly positive reviews. Greg Sandow from Entertainment Weekly gave it an A. He called it naughty and triumphant. He praised Madonna for knowing how to project Sondheim's characteristic verbal wit and calls it an album 10 times more accomplished than any record she has made before. Who? Yikes. Like the most fucking backhanded ass compliment. Jesus. He really liked some Breathless. Right? I guess so. So as I was saying before, this album was really my first introduction into Madonna. And I think something that had to do with it was that she... It's kind of a Broadway album. I I was going to say, like, this makes so... This makes total (laughs) 1,000% sense for Becky Mm Bain. Yeah. And I was a kid at the time, so I saw Dick Tracy. I loved it. You know, it was like a big live-action cartoon. Um, 
And I think it helped that she was in the movie. So I could recognize, oh, that's Madonna. And now she's singing these songs. And they were just very playful. It was obviously my first introduction to Stephen Sondheim, too, who is now the love of my life. Sorry, mm-hmm. husband. Sorry, um, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. That's right. <laughs> we would like to issue apologies to the following heartthrobs. <laughs> Mike. JTT, Brad Renfro, <laughs> not Jonathan Brandis. <laughs> so I'm Breathless was really the first time in my life where I was like, yeah, I'm a Madonna fan. I have very clear memories of singing Sooner or Later in the car with my mom. <laughs> That's so cute. That uh, makes me so happy. Yeah, I love. OK, well, let's just talk about it. <laughs> what did you guys think? Again, I, I found the same unevenness that I found in other things. Um, I don't really like Stephen Sondheim's lyrical sensibility because I, f- yeah, I feel like he goes for. I think of him as a very Aaron Sorkin-like writer of Broadway musicals. We're gonna get in a fight after this podcast in the parking That's lot. That's fine because I know that my taste in musicals is shit. But I thought a lot of the songs on this were really strong. I thought it was, for a Broadway thing, like, really good, really well done. Again, I think the production is very tinny and antiquated. Um, I at least appreciate that it feels like it was mostly performed by human beings playing instruments. I thought He's a Man was, like, a really good, like, starter pistol of a song for the album. And then we got to Going Bananas. (laughs) Track four. Track four. (laughs) Becky, what do you think of Going Bananas? Look, I wanted, I originally just wanted to do this album. (laughs) Because this album is bonkers. And thank God we added some more albums. (laughs) This album is bonkers. And I have not. Is it bananas? I have not listened to it since I was little. And I, for, then we were doing this podcast. And I was like, oh yeah, I used to love that album. Let's listen to it. And I listened to it. And I was like, what the fuck is this album? (laughs) This album is insane. Yeah, there are like 50 different musical styles going on Oh my God. So yeah, my thoughts are, I honestly think this album is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the Broadway-ness of it as as Broadway. Like I I think Sooner or Later is one of my favorite Madonna songs ever. The vocal on this is different than the one in the movie. Yeah, I think the... I think there are two versions, and the second one in the movie is the one from the album. Or I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like she's using her like her n- more normal singing tone here, which I actually really like. Like the review was saying, I think she does a good job of selling the songs. Yeah, and sooner or later, won Best Original Song at the 1991 Oscars. If you want to Google her performance, it's actually a really great, like, Marilyn Monroe-ish performance at the Oscars. And that's the same Oscars she brought Michael Jackson along as her date. That's a famous one. I wonder if they had a thing going. (laughs) I don't know. I bet that ended out well between Uh, them. It was literally the king and queen of pop together. Right, exactly. An arranged marriage. And I love Vogue, obviously. Vogue has absolutely no place on this album. It stands out like a sore thumb. Don't just stand there, let's get to it Strike a pose, there's nothing to it Oh, 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 oh. 
It's the last track, which is very strange. Yeah. And it doesn't sound yeah, like so, anything. So I had no idea that Vogue was on this for a second. I expected it to be a different song that she had also entitled Vogue. Like, <laughs> I was introduced to Vogue in summer camp. Oh, my God. Like, how many summer camps did you go to? <laughs> I did not go to school. Summer actually. camp was your Halloween. <laughs> I, I received a second grade education, and then it was summer camp from then on out. <laughs> Um, but part of summer camp was we would do performances with like choreography to different pop songs, and Vogue was the the song that we did choreography to. Oh, do you have a video? <laughs> oh, now you're interested. Can you now reenact the dance for us? I don't even remember if I actually participated. I started getting into like theater tech early on, so for all I know, I may have like pressed play on the tape for Vogue. No, I'm revising the story. You struck a pose, <laughs> little Seth struck a pose in his red cowboy boots <laughs> and was the star of the show was voguing all over the place. I was Madonna. Yes. <laughs> I think Vogue still holds up to me like perfectly. I don't know about you guys, but I loved listening to it still. I feel like I could listen to that song on repeat. Like I, I, really... I did. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That actually was originally supposed to be a B-side to the single Keep It Together from her Like a Prayer album. But when Warner execs heard the song, they decided to make it an A-side. Uh, it was moved to <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. It was moved to the I'm Breathless album and became the number one single off that album. It was her eighth number one hit. Wow. It really doesn't make sense that it's on this album. No, though. it doesn't. It, it was never supposed to be on, on it. It wasn't written for it at all, right? <laughs> no, it wasn't supposed to be on it. They just were like, well, let's push it to this album. It'll be the number one single that'll help push this album. Because the album is so weird. The album is so weird. Like yeah, those so I'm weird. Going Bananas songs. She's like Carmen Miranda. Yeah. The Crybaby so song. I'm, I'm Going Bananas. There are a couple things about this album that I think reflect trends in her career. And one of them is like cultural appropriation. And there are some ways and songs in which she does it really well. I think I'm Going Bananas is like super offensive. Is this the song where she puts on like a Mexican yes. accent? Yeah. yeah. This is like, it's I believe it might be a shit. South American accent, but yes. Oh, yeah. She's really working on her regional dialects there. Mm. Uh huh. I'm going bananas for I'm going bananas Well, it's definitely um, something maybe Breathless Mahoney in the movie might sing at the club in the 1930s noir movie. Maybe. Maybe, but it's not in the movie. Yeah. That's exactly my problem with this album is, so I listened to it before seeing the movie. I kind of wanted to do that and was totally kind of lost, but I was like, okay, well, this is basically like a Broadway soundtrack to a show, and I knew what kind of character Madonna plays in the movie. She's a lounge singer and kind of a femme fatale. So I just figured that she was performing all of these songs in the movie, <laughs> no. and I was like... Okay, like, this song is offensive, but maybe it's being funny that it, this kind of thing, like, was actually done in the 40s and all, all over the place in, like, lounge music. So I was like, okay, well, it's like a throwback to that, and it makes sense. And then, like, <laughs> I mean, the movie is... <laughs> I like the movie. I don't love the movie. I don't love I think, the movie. I think she's I think good it was, in it. it. Well, and I think it's beautiful as hell to watch. Yeah. It was impressive at the time that it came out, all the stylistic choices. 
But like the music, like I was just expecting much more of the music in the movie or it to play a real feature. And it's really just kind of in the background. And there's no reason that this needs to be original music, really. Or, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I feel like I listening to the soundtrack, I almost wanted the, mu- the movie to seem like a musical, like more like a musical. And it's really not. And you're exactly right that like the songs in this are very specific, but they aren't specific in any way that kind of advances the movie or, like, deepens any of the characters in the movie. Like, it's great that you have, like, three Sondheim songs and you use those in the movie, but, like, why is there also another album where she's kind of in the character of Breathless, but not really, because... Well, yeah, it's weird. I don't I don't get it. It's so. super weird. I was embarrassed listening to this in my car. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, can anybody hear me? I'm gonna roll my roll windows, the windows up. up. <laughs> and I love the song more. I love all the Stephen Sondheim songs, because I sang them growing up, um, but like listening to um, Now I'm Following You, part one and two, it was just, Oof. they're so strange. Especially the second one. Yeah, the second it's one. It's like a dance remix. The first one is like a little 1930s inspired like uh, duet kind of dance number. And then the second one is like, but what if it was today in the 1990s? <laughs> and it's Warren Beatty is like singing oh, no. and it's like remixed. Oh, God. It's awful. She says like. Dick, that's an interesting name. Dick, 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 dick. <laughs> it sounds like we are the gods, basically. <laughs> what about Dick Tracy? Dick, that's an interesting name. Dick. Dick. My bottom hurts just thinking about it. So I really do not enjoy hearing musical soundtracks before I've seen the show, (laughs) which I dated a musician who was really into musical theater, and he used to be like, this album is great, or, you know, Becky will occasionally... I think she knows not to do this anymore. (laughs) But it's like, even Hamilton, like, do not give me the music before I've seen the show, because I will have no context for it, and I will not like it. And that's what listening to this was like, except there is no show. (laughs) Right? So I still haven't seen the show. It's like you did the homework to study, like, the script of a musical that did not, in fact, exist. Yeah, and so I know that she's doing a character that's a throwback to the 40s, but it also just, like, kind of rubs me the wrong way that she's this kind of... Like, all of these songs are desperate about men, and they're all about, like, kind of, like, stand by your man kind of songs, or, like, why doesn't you love me? And it just, it was so against the vision of Madonna that I have and the stuff that I like about her that I really ended up kind of hating this album. Well, and it's also, like, it's not even, like, a real femme fatale attitude. Because the femme fatale doesn't fucking need a man. She, in fact, gets along better without one. (laughs) That's true. It's, like, she does have that image in the movie, but... This album is much more like the desperate girl. So that's an interesting thing about the movie, I think, is that we're going to spoil the movie, I think, to say that she is the villain of the movie. But like the weird thing about it is that she is kind of like desperate for Dick Tracy. In oh, the movie. yeah. She's like clinging on to him. Like, she's you gotta dick love hungry. Me. Yeah. And she's not just being like, I can seduce everyone. She's like obsessed with him. Oh, yeah. And it really reads strangely. So Warren Beatty wrote this movie as like an exploration of him trying to settle down, which he Mm -hmm. eventually did right after he dated Madonna with Annette Bening. And so Glenn Headley is kind of like the character that I don't think she's She's literally... She's the Glennette Bening. Yeah. I mean, that's what he was working out with this movie, but it's a little bit icky because Glenn Hadley's character is boring in this movie. She's whatever. And then Madonna is so, like, desperate for him that she doesn't really... Yeah, 
she doesn't exude like the the femme fatale stuff at all. It's like she looks like it, and the film is kind of shot in a way that evokes film noir, a very brightly colored film noir. But it doesn't actually do any of the things that film noir does. It actually rubs completely against all those tropes, and I don't well, think it I works. Well, I kind of feel like it does an Andrew Lloyd Webber Broadway-style iteration of that, you know, where everything is excessively colored, where you're taking the terminology of, like, the femme fatale without necessarily having all the darkness there. I think it succeeds as, like, a visual piece and just as kind of entertainment. But again, there's not too much story there. But I do have to say, like Becky, I did see Dick Tracy when it came out in the theater. And, you know, these songs are definitely one thing, but I was entranced by Madonna's performance in that movie at the time. And I was like, who is this person? Like, every time she was on screen, I was like, captivated. Oh, yeah. Watching it with you guys this time, I thought that it's really sad that she is stereotyped to be a bad actress because I think she has the potential to be a great actress. Oh, yeah. She was great in this movie for what it was. Like, I thought she was captivating. And like Chris was saying, I think like if she had been given a deeper character, I think she really would have run with that. Yeah. She's the most entertaining thing in the movie by far, I think. Like, I'm bored. Like, Dick Tracy is a really, really boring character. And it's a really boring performance from Warren Beatty, I think. Like, I'm only interested in this movie when she's on or when, like, Al Pacino is, like, screaming in crazy makeup. Mm -hmm. I like, (laughs) Seth, how you, like, constantly were reintroduced to Madonna not knowing who she was because she changes her look all the time. No, it's true! And I was like, who is this person I've never heard of or seen before? (laughs) Her hair is amazing in Dick Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) It's good hair. She gets special hair points as well. The last thing I wanted to say about I'm Breathless is just that my favorite part of listening to it was imagining 14-year-old Becky in the locker room singing Hinky Pinky. (laughs) (laughs) I have more memories of me in the car with my mom driving around Long Island and me singing. (laughs) Hinky Pinky. All of the songs. That song, we can't go without mentioning. Hanky Panky. Apparently, that was actually based on her private relationship with Warren Beatty. She liked to be spanked, and he didn't appreciate that she was sharing these things, even in a cutesy way, on her album. (laughs) Yeah, that made me really like the song a lot less, because I thought it was, like, in character and whatever. To know that that was written for him is just (laughs) icky. This might lead really well into what I want to talk about next, which is her Blonde Ambition tour and the documentary Truth or Dare. If I'm Breathless was the first thing from Madonna that I was really drawn to, then the Blonde Ambition Tour was the second thing. I had it recorded off, I believe, HBO. I watched it all the time. (laughs) I watched it like it was a movie. Like, I was obsessed with watching the Blonde Ambition Tour documentary. And I, please, go watch the whole thing on YouTube. It is worth watching from start to finish. If I could go back in time, go to any concert, I think I've said this before, it'd be Nirvana and Queen, and specifically the Blonde Ambition Tour. Is this separate from Truth or Dare? Is the, what's the chronology here? Truth or Dare was filmed during the tour. Okay. 
I am just obsessed with Madonna's performance in the concert. She, it's just so good. And what I really love about the Truth or Dare documentary is that it's not just about Madonna. And it's this really intimate look at somebody that's just so strong. And then you like see her with her dad and she's just changes in a second. You see this like vulnerability. But also it's about her backup dancers and about what being gay was like back then and about society and how they dealt with being gay and AIDS. And like it was a really great snapshot of what the 90s were like. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching this. Like, my Madonna window opened, like, right after this. <laughs> so. <laughs> they, they do call it the Madonna window yeah. in a couple apps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I miss Truth or Dare. I remember it actually coming out because I remember my mom renting it when my dad was out of town because I think that was the only time she would be allowed to <laughs> Ooh. watch this kind of thing. <laughs> when dad's away, the mom will play. Yeah, and I remember... <laughs> Your dad doesn't want to see what Madonna would look like giving a blowjob to a bottle of wine? <laughs> I mean, he might. I yeah, might. I'm not sure he was fully briefed on the contents of this motion picture. <laughs> I doubt he's ever seen it. It's fun for the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like walking in while she was watching it and I feel like it was actually maybe that truth or dare scene. And I was like, oh, it's Madonna. It's like, I can watch this because I was so used to seeing her, you know, on TV and everything. And it didn't occur to me that, like, <laughs> something on TV about her would actually not be appropriate for <laughs> a child. So I think I watched about 20 seconds of it. And then my mom was like, no. <laughs> and I, I was very betrayed that I could not, you know, watch. I was like, I can handle this. It's real life. Like, it didn't. It felt weird to me to not be allowed to see something that was a documentary or that was real because to me it was always like, oh, it's too scary or too sexy. And I guess I didn't understand that a documentary could be sexy. (laughs) So you put your hands over your eyes now and just watch through your fingers. There is some nudity in it for a second. She flashes the camera. Yeah. And so I had never seen this movie and it's very weird (laughs) that I had never gone back and watched it. Because, again, I consider myself a big Madonna fan, and this is a really well-known part of her career. I mean, it's... Like, I knew about this. Did you watch her concert movies? No. Interesting. Yeah, I don't don't know. I was, like, a very selective Madonna fan that was, like, in some ways, like, a very big fan, and in other ways just missed, like, giant chunks of her. So I was really happy to go back to Truth or Dare and watch it for the first time. I knew... Its reputation as a definitely a R-rated documentary and at a time when she was being very provocative. And it kind of goes in with all of the like erotica stuff that I, I was aware of at the time, too, like the sex book. The film was directed by Alex Kasheshian, not Kardashian. It was $4.5 million to make it, and it grossed $29 million. So it was the highest grossing documentary until 2002 when Bowling for Columbine came out. Holy shit! Yeah, it came out uh, in May of 1991. She got a Razzie for Worst Actress for this, which I think is a fucking bullshit. That is total fucking bullshit. Exactly. I think they just don't like Madonna. She's gotten Razzies for other stuff where I'm Everything. like, are you kidding? I think for Tr- Dick Tracy. Yeah. Like, what? You just They just don't like her. She has definitely earned mm, two or three of those swept away. Oh, yeah, swept yeah. away. <laughs> I don't even know if she got one for that. I, I imagine she must have. But. <laughs> yes. These award uh, shows, so political. But I don't think she's a bad actress. 
either. I mean... And she's not acting in a documentary. (laughs) No, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that this gave you such a feel for what it would be like to be on tour. And you really saw, like, the relationship she has with her dancers, which is really interesting because on one hand, they're kind of contemporaries and she's, like, partying with them. And, I mean, she's not exactly the most mature person in the world. So, you know, she's joking around with them. And then on the other hand, she is like their boss and she has a show to put on. And you really come out of this, I think, admiring her work ethic and how much of an author she is over everything that she does. But even a show like this where when we see like a concert from like Britney Spears or something, it's like she may or may not have had anything to do with choreographing or deciding anything. And I think that's true of a lot of artists. There are obviously some who do a lot more, you know, kind of hands-on work with it. But just seeing how much she was in control of this and how every decision that came from her directly was astounding. We want to be accepted by Hollywood. No! Do we care what people think of us? No! Do we want people to kiss our ass? Yes! Yes! Yes, we do. Okay, but, okay, but do we want to have an R rating or an X rating? Yeah, there's no detail in this tour that she has not slaved over and toiled over and tried to, like, make perfect. Like, she is such a fucking worker. That was one of the things that I came away with watching this. I was actually, like, really pleasantly surprised by this movie. It has a complexity to it that most music documentaries deliberately avoid, and it shows her in a vulnerable, a lot of vulnerable ways that would be seen as unflattering by other artists that other artists would get very insecure about. I respect her a lot more like having seen this even as long ago as this was. Yeah, it was so fascinating to me, Chris, like what you were just pointing out, like the way that she's both a boss to the dancers in her crew, but also like a mother role and she's aware of that. I don't think she is aware of like how ill-prepared she is to be that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and how really that isn't supposed to be her responsibility either. Like, and that's a burden that other people wouldn't necessarily take on or want to take on. But again, it made me, like, feel a lot for her because you see the burden that that puts on her and the weight that she feels and the seriousness with which she approaches not just performing, but, like, doing right by these people who work for her and doing right by her family. So it was just really interesting to watch because, again, as one-dimensional as the public image we're taught to have of Madonna is, she is obviously a human being. And this is a movie, unlike most music documentaries, that actually shows you a human being, like, living life and trying to do her job well. And, yeah, I just thought it was really, really good on that aspect, in addition to the performances just being astonishingly good like they're so technically amazing her muscles oh her muscles (laughs) are amazing the concert footage looks so beautiful on blu-ray it was just like amazing. yeah no it looks so fantastic and yeah just every single solitary detail is exacted I love the scene that could just be like a thesis statement for Madonna's life where Warren Beatty is there and she's like got a something wrong with her throat so she's seeing a doctor, yeah. and Warren Beatty's off to the side, like, why are you filming this? <laughs> <laughs> why is this in a music documentary? Why, why, are, why, why are you doing this on camera? And she's like, why not? 
And he's just like, of course, why, why, you, why do anything if it's not on camera? <laughs> she doesn't want to live off camera, much less that's talk. It, that's, I think that's what it is. <laughs> There's nothing to say off camera. Why would you say something if it's off camera? And tomorrow, you're going to what, be so What point is there of existing? I feel like Warren Beatty was acting in this movie in the role of Fuddy Duddy. <laughs> I feel like he was uncomfortable every second. Oh, definitely. And it's like no surprise that like halfway through he just disappears right. when they break up. Yeah, he actually forced her to cut scenes of them talking out, especially like phone conversations, because he said he didn't know that she was filming them. Yeah, he's well known for like being a Lothario, but he and, also... And a prickly sort. Yes, but in a kind of a removed way. Whereas what I find so amazing about this documentary is how open she is and how... I mean, I don't know if there's anything that she was like, oh, I don't want to show that, but She's it doesn't feel easily. like that. No, I mean, the like studio wanted her to cut things out like when she makes fun of Kevin Costner. Oh my God! Oh my God, that was so <laughs> fucking so great. It was amazing. There are so many moments with celebrities so in this, in this oh yeah. God. where she, like Kevin Costner says, wow, your concert was really neat. And he like shakes her <laughs> hand and leaves and she's like, neat. Anybody who says my concert is neat has got to go. It's just like you can see that reaction like in her eyes when he <laughs> oh, even says it. And you're like, oh, I don't think she likes this. But you rarely get like confirmation that that's what she's actually thinking. <laughs> And then she just turns around and does, like, a gagging motion. I'm like, yep, I knew. I could tell from your face that you were having that reaction. And then later I thought of you um, when she's, like, hitting on married Antonio Banderas. And, and, like, he's, you know, nice, but she's like, I never heard from him again. I don't think, like, I don't think he's a very good actor after all. (laughs) And then, like, five years later, they'd be in a Vita together. Right. I never never saw him again. (laughs) I feel like that was ripped from her version of Becky's diary about JTT. She had a running Antonio Banderas diary just about Almodovar movies. I, w- I wonder if he's like, I saw truth or dare. <laughs> so. You probably didn't know who she was. <laughs> Everything is so managed now, and I guess it mostly was back then too, but it's just like, you never get to see like a celebrity really... I mean, I guess you can kind of see it on Twitter sometimes now, but, like, a celebrity just make fun of another celebrity in, like, not a way that's appropriate, like, to seriously be like, that Kevin Costner is a dick, like, he's a, he's a dick, like, (laughs) get him out of here, is hilarious to me. And, I mean, the sexual stuff is, is also very open, like, she's clearly, like, comfortable with nudity and everything, but I think it's more, the fact that she's not always, like, a nice person, or, like, she'll go after a married man, and instead of, like, making excuses for why she did that, or, like, downplaying it, she's like, yeah, I was, like, trying to seduce married Antonio Banderas, like, fuck it. Yeah, and it was, it was, to me, it kind of both pokes the balloon of what a diva is, but also kind of confirms. Because, <laughs> like, she is oh, yeah. very much a diva, and she is very much a spoiled brat. Yeah. Like, you can tell. But again, also, like, the fact that she is both that person and an incredibly attentive manager and boss of a lot of people and super exacting, critical, artistic eye on an entire gigantic stage show. Like, it was interesting to see that much of a person. Yeah, I feel like she justifies being that diva by the fact that 
so much of this would not happen if she was not behaving like that. None and of she it. really does have to call the shots. This also reminded me, I'm not sure I ever realized, how Italian she is. Very true. That is very true. I was just like, whoa. And and her whole family, like, I knew her last name was Italian, and that was her kind of background. And, like, all the Catholic imagery is, you know, comes from there. But, whoa, is it's, <laughs> it's kind of like watching a Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> I love the moment when her she's calling her dad being like, and I think they have not a super great relationship. Um, obviously, they talk. Um, but she was like, do you want to come to the show? Who do you want to bring? And she's he's like, oh, whatever. What If you can get us seats. And she's like, I'm Madonna. It's my show. I can get you tickets. <laughs> like, it's not a problem. <laughs> I feel like her more, so- more recent song, Bitch, I'm Madonna, was probably written directly to her father. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, I'm Madonna. I can get you tickets. <laughs> oh, father, bitch, I'm Madonna. <laughs> uh, you can definitely tell this is the 90s because oh, they break out not. Like, it's the funniest <laughs> thing. This, this new that. phenomenon, we negate things for irony's sake. It's just so awkward because she's such a an icon and and she really is like a boss lady in so much of this. And then she like thinks like not is so funny and you're like, wow, you are like a 20... Like a bratty 20-year-old. Right, that's the thing, is like, but I love that that's part of it. She was in her early 30s. But she seemed like a bratty 20-year-old. Okay. So we're two years into Madonna now. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, only eight years left. There's a light at the end of that tunnel. Pause, go, you know, relieve yourself, you know, take, take a nap, I don't know. And now we're back. So that was kind of Madonna's Hollywood glam phase. She had just dated two really big actors and had been in a bunch of movies, uh, some bigger hits than others. Uh, She was also in A League of Their Own, which came out in 1992. Which you may be familiar with from, I don't know, maybe an episode of this podcast? Yes, in which my big takeaway was that I love Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) She has a lot of songs on soundtracks that aren't on any of these albums, except maybe some compilation albums, but like, this used to be my playground. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'll remember from oh god that movie with honors <laughs> with honors <laughs> yeah that what? those were collected on the album something Some, to remember mm-hmm. yeah because I think <laughs> yeah there's so many of those that were like strays is that like a ballads collection yes oh okay and we might mention this later or maybe not but like I really love the song beautiful stranger from the Austin Powers 2 soundtrack and that's not on any of her albums and I really I forgot about it and on the way over to record this I was like oh wait a minute I love that song for some reason I had thought that it was on Ray of Light it was during that era yeah it should have been let's just put it that way yeah it should have been on Ray of Light it's a great song it should have been on the Dick Tracy soundtrack (laughs) Vogue who needs it so we're now entering the phase that I guess I'll call the naughty Madonna phase. We're, we're, we're entering the penetration phase of Madonna. <laughs> Come yeah. on, we can just put it that way. I don't know. I, I can't hum you the rest of that song, but I can hum you. Yeah, that's about it. So to kind of introduce us to this phase, we'll go back to 1990 to the single Justify My Love, which was released on the Immaculate Collection and was a new song co-written by Lenny Kravitz. And it featured her doing spoken word and whispering, which is something that she would do a lot of in these next couple of albums. So the Justify My Love video was banned from MTV and subsequently released as a VHS single. And it sold, I think, half a million copies. It was a huge hit for something that was, you know, five or six minutes long. 
I was buying all my singles on VHS tapes back then. <laughs> it's controversial. It had something to do with sex and Madonna, a huge star. So, of course, it's going to sell a lot. Yes. <laughs> so the vibe of Justify My Love was continued on Madonna's next album, Erotica. It was released on October 20th, 1992. And on October 21st, 1992, her book Sex came out. So there was obviously a lot of uh, synchronicity with the release of those two. Surely no controversy. These came out quietly and did not make a splash. Not at all. Uh, The sex book was shot in New York City and Miami, mostly using Super 8 film, and featured cameos from Naomi Campbell, Isabella Rossellini, and Vanilla Ice, amongst others. (laughs) Mm, There was one of those in that list there that was a different All of the most erotic uh, (laughs) pop culture figures we can think of. The photos were by fashion photographer Stephen Mizell. Madonna originally wanted the book to be oval, like a condom, but that was going to be (laughs) too expensive, so... It was a rectangle, like most books. (laughs) At one point, the photos were stolen and had to be recovered by the FBI. The book sold 150,000 copies on its first day. Where's my copy? I've never seen this book. There's only one million copies printed at all, and they refused to put any more out. So it was a limited edition, which is why, like, if you look online for it now, the book is well over $100. I can definitely say that having flipped through it, it's really artful and is a carefully considered and crafted piece of coffee table art. Yeah, the book features pictures of oral sex, masturbation, interracial threesomes, same-sex action, and, like, full frontal nudity. But all of this is simulated. You know, it's not, like, a hardcore porn. It's very clear that this is erotic photography, but not... Yeah, so, I mean, there's... This kind of brings up, for me... A feeling that I also got from listening to Erotica for the first time. A lot of the sexiness of this seems like a put-on. And it seems like play-acting. Like, not in a way where it seems fake, but where it seems like it's... Like, she wants it to be clear that she's, like, doing a performance. Mm -hmm. And the kind of theatricality of sex in that way kind of hits me in a weird way where it, like, doesn't turn me on but also isn't super entertaining. I, I don't know. It's I, I'm not, like, settled on the way that I feel about it, because, again, I was just listening to Erotica for the very first time. Like, But a lot of the other things about her, even things that get described as, like, artificial or superficial, this kind of seems a bit more faked to me. Yeah, that's basically what the critical response to the book was, and the album in a way as well. Uh, Karen James of the New York Times said, of course, some of us actually like the opposite sex. Some of us believe it is possible to have great sex without whips, third parties, or domestic pets. Well, that's really (laughs) shitty and kink-shaming. But that would not serve Madonna's purpose in sex, to duplicate the strategy that has made her loved, loathed, and rich. So, yeah, there was kind of a nastiness around her, as we've kind of alluded to, especially in this era. Like, people really kind of, like, beat up on her in the press, and... It's not that she wasn't asking for it a lot of the time. You know, she really laid herself out there and did things specifically to be provocative. So you can't totally feel like like bad Brilliantly successfully so. Yeah. This book featured also a photo of her kind of like, I guess, kind of straddling a dog. Like not having sex with the dog, but it was kind of like referred to as bestiality. And that was the kind of narrative that most people got. Because most people like Becky never even saw a copy of this book. It was actually hard to get, but everyone knew it existed. I knew it existed, and I was like eight or nine years old or something at the time. 
I think the sex book and the release of that was like the first time that I really got a whiff of like the public image of Madonna and the way that the media liked to talk about her just as like this naughty person in public life. I think what's interesting is that none of this is at the time was mainstream at all. Like it was really overt sex, sex, sex. And usually people did it in more subtle ways or it was like kind of there was a sexiness about people's image, but it wasn't like dominatrix sex, oh, see, all about I, sex. I will disagree with that, but only to a certain extent. Like, I, I, I think that sexuality was even more overt and on the nose and upfront as this, or more upfront than this, um, but it was never from the perspective of a woman. Okay. I think that was the actual difference. Because there were, like, beer commercials with titties. There was porkies. There was, like, every National Lampoon had obligatory boob shots in it. I think what was really pioneering and different is that Madonna was the one doing it, and Madonna and women were enjoying it. Well, it was definitely not kid-friendly, because this is a huge (laughs) blind spot for me, because what when did this come out? 92? Yeah. Like, I wasn't even 10 yet. And I could already tell, oh, this is not for me. Like, this is not Dick Tracy. <laughs> like, <laughs> This is not Clockwork This is orange. not Hanky Panky. <laughs> like this, and I, I was familiar with the singles because, you know, she's Madonna still. Like, her singles were still on the radio. We still saw the videos. Um, but it was, I could tell it was music for sex and for clubs. And as a nine-year-old, that had nothing to do with me. So Not until you were 11, right? <laughs> <laughs> I could just tell it wasn't for me. And so I literally, I've never listened to anything of erotica until this podcast. It was just, I've never really been interested in anything in erotica because I didn't even have any nostalgia for it. I was just like, oh, this phase Madonna is clearly not for me. Musically, I feel like this is her weakest of the albums that we listen to for this. I feel like lyrically and musically, it doesn't really seem like she actually has all that much to say or all that much that she really feels the need to personally express. Like, again, it's it's between that kind of over-the-top theatrical sexualization and the, like, performance of that. I don't know. This this one really didn't hit me all that much at all. Um, I liked... Mm, I was about to say I liked the singles, but I liked Deeper and Deeper. I think it's mostly just because I remember that one well enough at the time. And I think the hook for Erotica is memorable, But on the whole, this, yeah, this album was really boring. It felt repetitive, really repetitive. Every track just felt like the same thing over and over. Yeah. And I mean, this is really for me when it became apparent that she lacked an editor or someone who would tell her like, you can trim this down. This song does not need to be six minutes long. As much as I appreciate that the song Where Life Begins is a song about her literally just commanding the men of the world to eat her out. It did not need to be six minutes. This is a very long album. Most of the songs are around five or six minutes. And the whole album, I think, is around 75 minutes. It's puffy around the edges. It really is. Yeah. So this album was produced by Shet Pettibone, who also produced uh, Justify My Love. So there's a reason why that sounds like it could belong on this album. Erotica was the first single uh, released in September 1992, and the video was also (laughs) banned by MTV after it aired three times. And it's really just like behind the scenes of the sex book. You you see like Naomi Campbell and all those people just filming those things. And that song peaked at number three on the Billboard charts. 
And so again, like Justify My Love, it's spoken word and it is, it does have a very sexy beat to it. I think it kind of lives up to the image of this album in a way that I don't think a lot of the tracks actually do. If I take you from behind, push myself into your mind when you least expect it, you try to reject it. If I'm in charge, then I treat you like a child. Will you let yourself go wild? Let my mouth go where it wants to. Give it up, do as I say. Give it up and let me have my way. I'll give you love, I hit you like a truck. I'll give you love, I teach you how to. I'd like to put you in a Yeah, I think the yeah. video and the song is definitely sexier than like any moment of like any Fifty Shades of Grey movie. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like, oh my god! Like I can imagine like putting on that song like, and you're gonna you're gonna get nasty. Wait, what are you gonna do? Get nasty, and you're not oh, gonna no, make love. You're gonna like. <laughs> <laughs> Won't. You're gonna do hanky panky. Yes, thank you. Oh my god, I love that we're now all modulating our language for your mom. I'm not. Fuck. <laughs> we're gonna fuck. <laughs> Prudy Becky. <sighs> anyway, it's it's a sexy song. You get British and- in the Madonna erotica <laughs> section. Of all the episodes to become a good girl on. That's not a nice word. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that it is it is genuinely sexy. The video is sexy. Like I think she's nailing that. I just think <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> she's like a lay. <laughs> Yeah, the song begins with her saying, my name is Dita and I'll be your mistress tonight. And that was the alter ego she used for this album and also for the sex book. Is Like Seth said, it, she was definitely putting on a performance for this. She was even aware of it enough to kind of differentiate herself as this character. Yeah, I remembered hearing that and I didn't quite connect that it was that she had kind of verbalized that as a concept for it. The next single was Deeper and Deeper, and I think that's a much better exhibit of what the rest of this album sounds like, which is not like erotica, really, (laughs) at all. Uh, It's very house music, very disco-influenced. 90s club music. I would say even, like, 80s club music. I think it it feels more like a throwback. It's really throwback. It's also very... Gay sounding. <laughs> it is extraordinarily homosexual. What, just the beats? Yeah. Just, yeah, it feels kind of like Donna Summery, I guess. The beats like other boy beats, Becky. That's what <laughs> we're saying here. And I wanted to talk about the music video for Deeper and Deeper because picking up right where Chris left off, 
Um, this music video was absolutely full of decades worth of gay icons and also art icons. So in this video were Andy Warhol's superstar Hollywood Lawn, gay porn director Chi Chi LaRue, gay <laughs> porn star Joey Stefano, who also appeared in The Sex Book, Madonna's longtime friend and collaborator, the actress Debbie Mazar, who was mm. in many of the videos. I believe she's also in Truth or Dare, um, and she also later appeared in Madonna's music video for music. And the director felt by including the gay porn performer and the drag queen gay porn director, Chi Chi LaRue, Madonna was connecting with her gay audience as well as cementing her status as a gay icon. And I mean, I definitely think that's true. I mean, it's not like the gays weren't ride or die for Madonna before this. I think it worked. Yeah, I think it worked. (laughs) One thing I find interesting about this album is that like Madonna was always criticized for being sexual, even when she wasn't being that sexual. Like the song Like a Virgin kind of scandalized people, even though it's actually a very innocent song. It's about saying like, I feel like, you know, a young girl when I'm with you. Like the song isn't really anything to do with sex. It just has the word virgin in it. But this was kind of branded onto her. So I feel like this was very much her kind of taking that and being like, well, if this is my image, like, here you go. Now see how you like it. I think we can all agree, though, that this album is just kind of underwhelming as a whole. I mean, there are, I I will say, I will give it only this, is there are a couple moments that I found really entertaining. Like Thief of Hearts, the song Thief of Hearts, um, I really disliked the song, but it starts with the sound of glass breaking and Madonna just snarling the word bitch, (laughs) which I I loved. I fucking loved it. I disliked the song a lot. Thief of Hearts is one of my favorite Madonna songs because it's so campy and ridiculous. I cannot understand why it is not like a drag queen anthem that I hear at every club because it just sounds like it was written to be exactly that. It is, it feels almost like a parody song, but I've, it's hilarious. It's really fun. Sit your ass down. And I tried to look up more about it on the internet, and there is literally nothing about this song. Like, no who inspired it. And I think that's really sad because it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I don't think any of the songs live up to the promise of... I think they're all forgettable. Madonna saying bitch. There's a a ballad called It's This Life. And conceptually, it's like a beautiful tribute to her friends that she's lost to AIDS. I just think it's a relatively boring song that just ends up being really forgettable, even though it's about a really heartfelt thing. And like, especially from having watched Truth or Dare, like you saw the level of her, the depth, you saw the depth of her love for those people around her and all the people she lost. One track that I think stands out from this album is the song Bad Girl, which has a video that was directed by David Fincher, his fourth video for Madonna, and features Christopher Walken playing her guardian angel. And in it, she's kind of a high-powered executive named Louise who hooks up with a lot of guys. And the, the video is inspired by the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar. I could not understand what was going on in this video. Really? <laughs> it was really lost. Yeah, it was a real, it was a real thinker, this one. I don't want to feel blue 
I feel like it's interesting because so many of her videos are known for being really sexy and explicit. And this one is about that. But like, you don't actually see really any sex in it. It's You would think that that would be part of the video of her hooking up with these guys. But it's actually done very vaguely, which is interesting. But I found it really fascinating because she plays a character who's really powerful, but really miserable. And I kind of feel like that is who Madonna was at this time, is that she, like on this album and just in this time in general, she's trying so hard to be provocative and you can it's kind of desperate and I think it's not you know desperate in a bad way I think there's still a lot of like really interesting artistic achievement that came out of this but like it's definitely faux confidence it's like putting on this persona of being kind of a mistress and a dominatrix but I don't think it comes from a place where she's actually feeling as confident as she's saying that she is I, I really feel like this is kind of a almost like a cry for help period or just a kind of a, a she was coming out of these bad relationships with Sean Penn and Warren Beatty uh, and yeah I just feel like she's kind of like lost at this point and kind of grasping for an identity and going after something that she's always been defined by and that she knows that she can do well and she knows that she can push this but that it's not really I don't, I don't think it really I, sticks I feel like that. I feel like so much of that imagery would work it's just I think she's putting on a performance that she doesn't have anything to say with like, that's the thing is, like, she's not using the S&M imagery and that eroticism or that kind of intimacy to tell us anything about what she's learned about being with these men that she was so in love with. Like, that's the thing is, like, pop performers of all kinds, you know, dress up their own specific life stories in really general language or very poetic language. And she does that really effectively at a lot of different points in her career. I just think at this point, she's kind of, like, just running on fumes. And like you're saying, like, she does just kind of repeat the image. But I think at her best, she uses that image to tell us and make us feel something. And I don't really think she knows what to try to make us feel. I kind of disagree because I feel like she is telling us something with this album. It's just not the thing that she's telling us she's telling us. Like the song Bad Girl is kind of about her being like weary of being sexy and kind of like, and the video is like she dies in it. Like it's kind of like the death of her like kind of more promiscuous image and yet she didn't she was like promoting this album with that promiscuous image but I feel like the songs are not actually that sexy like I do feel like her heart kind of isn't in that so much as it's in you know something that's more thoughtful and it's kind of this interesting clash I think between what she's actually feeling and what she's expressing that she's maybe not trying to express and what she's like the image that she's getting across Uh, Bad Girl was her first single to miss the top 20 in a streak of 27 consecutive top 20 hits since Holiday. So this also kind of marks a phase that was more critically dismissed. You know, it wasn't an acclaimed album. Like, some people liked it, some people didn't. But she was getting a lot of flack at this point, and she was kind of, like, losing her popularity. Her image as an actress had also kind of flayed a little bit. Like, she was being known as a terrible actress, even though she was in movies that were big hits, like A League of Their Own and Dick Tracy. But, yeah, there was just, like, there there were a lot of things, like, bearing down on her, I think, in this era. Yeah, what's surprising on this album, I think, is how little sex there is. There's even song titles called uh, Why Is It So Hard and Deeper and Deeper that aren't even about sex at all. So it's like you you kind of look at the track list and think that it's a much naughtier album than it is. And it the only, I think, overtly naughty song is Where Life Begins, which, as Seth mentioned earlier, 
is uh, not, er- not erotica. <laughs> Uh, that one too. I meant after <laughs> yeah. that one. I feel like the most the, the, this one's the most on the nose. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics, some of them include: Now, what could be better than a home cooked meal? How you want to eat it depends on how you feel. You can eat all you want, and you don't get fat. Now, where else can you go for a meal like that? And also, uh, the line: Can you make a fire without using wood? Which I find very clever, actually. It's pretty good. It's a good line. It's a good line. I don't think it's a very good song. No, I don't either. I just think it's... And it's so long! In 1993, Madonna starred in Body of Evidence, uh, opposite Willem Dafoe, in which she played Rebecca Carlson, charged with murder for erotic asphyxiation. And in the movie begins an S&M relationship with her lawyer, uh, who is Dafoe and is cheating on Julianne Moore. And she dies at the end, just like Dick Tracy. So I feel like she kind of like was set up to be the star of this movie. And it was not well-received. It was one of Siskel and Ebert's most hated movies of the year. It really played into the bad actress thing. I think she got another uh, Razzie for this one, or at least was nominated. And in 1994 was a big single I'll remember uh, from the movie With Honors. The movie was directed by Alec Kasheshian, uh, who directed Truth or Dare. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was another really generic ballad. Like, it could have just been copy-pasted from any other number of Madonna ballads. Yeah, I think it just shows that she's like kind of in the mood to go in a softer direction, which leads us into Bedtime Stories, her 1994 album. March 1994 was her infamous appearance on David Letterman. It is so infamous that it has its own Wikipedia entry. (laughs) On the airing, she said fuck 14 times. Uh, A word... (laughs) Sorry, Becky. Sorry, Becky's mom. (laughs) Becky, she said fuck. 13 times. (laughs) Which gave him some of his best ratings ever and became the most censored talk show. You're Uh, welcome, David Letterman. She wrote a fax to David Letterman shortly after (laughs) that said, uh, Happy fucking birthday, Dave. Glad you could get so much mileage out of the fucking show. Next time you need some fucking publicity, just give me a fucking call. Love the Antichrist. (laughs) (laughs) I love this woman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where is this Madonna? Where has she gone? She's in Malawi opening schools for girls. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking schools for fucking girls. Bedtime Stories was started with Shep Pettibone, who also co-wrote and produced a lot of erotica but madonna felt that the music was too similar to erotica so she scrapped what they had done and started working with producers like babyface who had worked with whitney and boys to men dallas austin who had worked with tlc and nelly hooper and she wanted it to be kind of a blend of hip-hop r&b and british club music her blonde look for this album was inspired by Jean Harlow. The lead single off of Bedtime Stories was Secret. The video features Madonna singing at the Lennox Lounge in Harlem and is intercut with scenes of life in the neighborhood. I had never seen this video before today, but I was particularly interested because I lived right off of Lennox. This video was shot on the street that I walk down every day. The Lennox Club is five blocks from where I lived, so I recognized everything in the video, and it was, yeah, it was cool. It was just like, I had no idea that she had shot a video in Harlem, and that, you know, you can kind of read some cultural appropriation into that kind of thing, but I also just appreciate it because it's probably not something that a lot of people were seeing in, you know, pop culture in... Uh, 1994 so i think that's a beautifully shot video and the song secret already sounds way more fresh and current than erotica oh yeah like it actually would hold up today i think just from the get-go this album is like such a leap forward for her 
Yeah, I totally agree. I've always felt that erotica is more interesting in concept than ex- execution. It's not an album I almost ever listen to all the way through just because, yeah, the songs are so long and so, so many of them sound very similar. This album, I think, is one that you can listen to all the way through, kind of against what you guys were saying a little earlier, is that I think that this is a real album album, and it all feels cohesive, and I don't I don't think there's really, like, a dud on it. There's, you know, some songs are better than others, but... Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> I think the singles on this album are fantastic. Um, I think the rest, the rest really bored me, and this was the first time I listened to the album ever as a whole and I was really surprised because I know how much you like it and so I was kind of expecting something a little bit better but I thought the singles just shone so brightly and the non-singles were really boring and just repetitive and they're they're boring in a different way than Erotica's tracks were boring but I still just wasn't impressed and I but the singles I love <laughs> like the the single Human Nature is probably one of my favorite Madonna songs ever uh, and one of my favorite Madonna videos. And the song Take a Bow, I think, is one of her most beautiful ballads. And, like, that music video was so hot to me. <laughs> I think it was a little bit older when this album came out. I was still watching VH1. And Take a Bow with, like, the whole um, Matador theme. Mm-hmm. It's literally, like, the hottest video to me. And her, like, lingerie, at some point, she, like, is on a bed and she's, like, you know, masturbating, you know, in a way, metaphorically. And she has this, like, bra on, this, like, lingerie set. And, like, how when was this? What year was this? 94. So I was, like, 11. And to 11-year-old me, I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> like, super hot. <laughs> super hot. That whole video. And that video holds up because I still think it's one of the hottest things. Well, you'd also seen her masturbating on a bed in the yeah. Blonde Ambition tour. <laughs> yes, but this was just, like, gorgeous. I think she's never looked hotter than in, in the Take About video. Yeah, this video was filmed in Spain. Take a Bow was her 11th number one single. I think this song is gorgeous. This is one of my favorite Madonna songs. It spent seven weeks at number one. It was her longest running time at number one ever. And the reason she went for kind of a Spanish theme was because she was after the role of Evita. <laughs> I had a feeling that like came into play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the video is an homage to a movie called Matador, starring Antonio Banderas. <laughs> uh, by Pedro Almodovar, who she references a lot in um, Truth or Dare. And so she's obviously a fan of it. Um, And this won an MTV Video Music Award for Best Female Video. So this was a, yeah, this was one of her biggest hits, for sure. Yeah, her human nature video I love so much too. She's like in dominatrix wear, um, and it's just very striking black and white photography. Um, oh yeah, and the yeah. way that it's lit like makes her eyes like pop in every single shot. Yeah, no, it's a yeah. I love those songs. Uh, I love Secret as well. I love Take a Bow. Like those are some of my favorite songs of hers. And then it's like up against a lot of other songs that are just way yeah. too long and padded out. I thought Bedtime Story. So that's the video that's very surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not like that video when I was younger, and I didn't like the song. And I think now as an adult, I like it. 
I appreciate its weirdness and its surreality. <laughs> I had no idea Bjork wrote that song, which was really, it all makes sense. <laughs> like, oh, Bjork wrote it. Okay. It feels very Bjork. The <laughs> video feels very Bjork as well. Yeah. It feels like an erotic horror movie. Like, I really dig it, actually. I think the song is awful. I think this sounds like Bjork's, like, cast off, cast off of a forgotten B-side. Like, I think she's such a better songwriter than this. And I mean, from what I've read, it was kind of a very, very brief collaboration. I appreciate that the song existed. I appreciate that they did collaborate. I do think Madonna took a lot of influence from Bjork and Bjork's like producers and collaborators in the direction that her music was going. But I don't think this is a strong example of it. I, like, I really don't like that song. I like it with the video. Like, I don't think I want to listen to it without watching the video. I like the song by itself and with the video. The video is the fourth most expensive music video ever made still uh, at $5 million. Number one is Scream by um, Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. And number two is Madonna's Die Another Day. And number three is Madonna's Express Yourself. Wow. So so weird. Yeah, she... she Die Another Day? I know, right? I don't even remember what that video is, I think actually. it's like Car Crashes. I can't remember that song. Or I might be thinking of what it feels like for a girl. I don't know what that music video is. Yeah. Well, we'll have to watch it. So I love this album. I think it starts off really strong with a song called Survival, which, I mean, to me, this is a kind of a concept album. And this is her coming back from the erotica phase. Erotica had, even though it kind of had this image, and she used the image of being a dominatrix, a lot of the songs are actually about her kind of like being desperate for men and you know, being hurt by men. And that's really kind of what I got from her on Dick Tracy, too. I feel like this is the album where she really becomes, like, the Madonna that we know, and she's really self-confident. And she's, like, I think that's best evidence on Human Nature, the song where she's really, like, directly addressing her critics, you know, saying, like, oops, I didn't know I couldn't talk about sex. And that's a very direct, like, rebuttal to, like, all the critics who called her, you know, all kinds of things for releasing the sex book and being too sexy. And I love just like the kind of Catwoman-esque imagery in the video. Mm-hmm. It's kind of S&M influence, but I feel like it, there's no pretense of actually trying to be sexy or provocative with it. It's all about power. Yeah, I think that's why this version of it was more effective for me and just seemed more fun because it didn't seem like she was aiming at anything like more deep than that. Yeah, and it also has a chihuahua in it, which I think really helps. And she's, like, spanking the chihuahua a little bit with her little whip. (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) Yeah, this song is kind of a sequel to Express Yourself, which is another song, obviously, about, you know, kind of taking charge. But that was from the Like a Prayer album, which was very much about her relationship with Sean Penn. And then this video features her, like, kind of, like, bound to a chair, too. So that's a story that that came out of this, is that Sean Penn tied her to a chair and like kind of tortured her when they were married. That was her version of what happened. And he, of course, denies it. But I do kind of feel like this is like the ultimate fuck you to him, to her critics and to everyone. And it's just kind of a declaration that she's like, 
a survivor. Another song that I like on this, I don't have a lot to say about it, but is Forbidden Love. I think that's a really interesting R&B song from Babyface that's really, again, it's it's a maturely sexy song. It's not like a like trying to be sexy song. It's like an actually sexy song. Like, to me, that would be like probably her sexiest song, at least up until this point. In We should also say that she had also created her own record label at this point, Maverick, uh, that came about in 1992. So she was really taking charge. You know, she she obviously came up against uh, a lot of pushback on what she did. And even though she was able to push back the pushback mostly, you know, eventually she got to a point where she was tired of being kind of censored and criticized. And she decided that she needed to take kind of charge of the way that her... Uh, music and entertainment was re- even released, like, you know, to the masses, which I think is another very rare thing for an artist to do. So then Evita is the third soundtrack album by Madonna. Uh, it was released on November 12th, 1996, to promote the 1996 American musical drama film Evita. Oh, was that what it was promoting? What was the second? Or what was the first? There's I'm Breathless, and what was the other one? Desperately Seeking Susan? Or yeah. who's that girl? Who's that girl? Who's that girl? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the film is based on Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1978 musical uh, about the first lady of Argentina, Eva Perón. Uh, and of course, she in this film co-starred with Antonio Ibanderas. Uh, and also still Jonathan Price. What? <laughs> He's still married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really, the there are a couple noteworthy things about this. One, I mean, it was a huge, like, best-selling soundtrack album, for one. Um, after securing the title role in the movie, Madonna underwent vocal training in order to enhance her singing, singing capabilities. Um, and then the director worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Rice to compose the soundtrack. And they wrote a new song called You Must Love Me for the film. And I'll let you see how nothing has changed. Deep in my heart, I'm concealing things that I'm longing to say. Scared to confess what I'm feeling. Frightened you'll slip away. You must love me. You must love me. You must love me. They released it as a single. They wrote and released this song explicitly to try to get nominated for the best original song category at the Oscars. (laughs) Um, It worked, (laughs) and they won the Oscar. That's a good song too. That happens all the time. Yeah, Yeah. no, it happens all the. It's just hilarious. Like fifty percent of the original song winners for the past at least like thirty years were written just to win an Oscar. 
Oh yeah, that's no, a great it's, song though. It's a great song. I, I again, it was like one of those singles that the moment it came out for that song, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm gonna go see this movie. Um, I didn't see. Evita in theaters, but I saw it in video like the moment it came out. I saw it in theaters. I loved it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I had a really big connection to the Evita soundtrack, actually. is like, I guess it was my real entry into like listening to Madonna because this came out before, you know, Ray of Light, which was kind of my first actual Madonna album. I remember hearing the soundtrack like just at my grandpa's house because I was aware of the movie, but it didn't really interest me that much because I wasn't really into musicals and I didn't know the story. And then when I heard the music, I was just like, yeah, I love this. And I like ended up borrowing it from him and really like established a really deep connection to the lyrics from the song and just the the overall persona that Madonna plays in this. I mean, it, it really plays off of her image and that she's like a despised but powerful woman who's very charismatic, but judged for being too sexually provocative and kind of a social climber. And so she's kind of considered trash. I mean, that didn't really like mirror my life at the time that I was 13 or 14. I would say it still doesn't mirror your life. <laughs> <laughs> it is my fucking life story. Aspirationally. There was something about it, like a a lot of the lyrics around the Argentinian politics that I really connected <laughs> to. No, I, and I mean, there are a lot of great songs in this musical. Like, it's just as a musical, I, I think it's pretty strong. Um, and, and I also thought it was really strong as a movie and really cool that she pursued that role, but really cool that she got it because I think she absolutely nails that performance. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress. Yeah, I think it's entirely deserved. And I th- think she did a fantastic job singing it. She sang the hell out of those songs. Even Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, which was from the original musical, became like a hit single. Like, oh, yeah. That's crazy. There's a dance remix, too. Uh, yeah. I the remember. soundtrack album. Did does. you do a dance remix of your own? No, I didn't have the remix dance to it. No. You didn't stand in the locker room and <laughs> have someone oonce for you? I'll let you know when there's a song that I have a dance to. <laughs> I would like to mention that I went to Argentina uh, last summer <laughs> and definitely walked around Buenos Aires listening to What's New Buenos Aires <laughs> and was like, I hope that no one can actually hear what I'm listening to because the Argentinians will fucking hate me. <laughs> this is the cheesiest thing. But I really enjoyed being outside the Casa Rosada Crying Eva Peron. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to have a whole podcast about Andrew Lloyd Webber and Evita, so we should probably Yeah, <laughs> like, we should probably skedaddle on from there. Um, the only other relevant thing is, like, it, it ended up going five times platinum in America. It was a really big, it was number two on the Billboard 200 charts. The album's, like, a really big success. Um, which leads us directly into Ray of Light. Uh, which was released on February 22nd, 1998. This was her seventh studio album, recorded after giving birth to her first child. Lords. This album was produced by William Orbit, Marius DeVries, who was a co-producer and co-writer on a lot of her other songs, especially in Bedtime Stories. And though she co-wrote some songs with uh, collaborator Patrick Leonard, uh, who she had worked with on many different albums, especially earlier ones, he didn't do any production this time. Um, She went with William Orbit because uh, Madonna's whole plan for this album was to make a really big stylistic break from all of her previous work. And even though it does kind of flow organically from the sounds of the albums before it, especially Bedtime Stories, it adds a lot more complexity and introspection both to the lyrics and to, I think, the music itself. 
Ray of Light won several Grammys, including Best Pop Vocal Album and Best Dance Recording for Ray of Light. This is, in fact, the best-selling studio album of Madonna's career. Uh, at just under 3 million copies sold in America, it has sold more than 16 million copies worldwide. And this is my favorite thing Madonna ever did besides Evita. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, do, do we want to just go around with our general thoughts first? Um, either when this album came out, because, I mean, this is obviously the latest of the albums that we're discussing, uh, and also what it's like to re-listen now. This was another blind spot for me. I kind of vaguely knew the, the singles over the years because of the music videos, but I never listened to the whole album. That's um, insane. Yeah, I think that is. It's weird because I actually <laughs> thought I owned the whole thing, and then I realized I didn't. I mean, again, I love the singles and don't really like the non-singles. Like, I really don't think I was missing anything, actually, um, outside of the singles. Um, I kind of like the song Mer Girl. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting, but, like, I think I have to listen to it a few more times to know if I actually, like, love it. But, yeah, I but I love the singles. Like, I love Ray of Light. I think that the song... Um, Drowned World's Substitute for Love is maybe one of my favorite Madonna songs. Like, it's just so beautiful and So that's the charming. opening song of the album. It's just a very beautiful, delicately sung song. And I just really appreciate it. It sounds like a really strong evolution from where she came from, that she would release something like that. And, and, and most of these songs. You see? The face of you substitute for love my substitute for love should i wait for you my substitute for love my substitute for liked i really like the singles <laughs> it's really funny how i can like all the singles and all of these albums are very different but they're all yeah. the same artists mm. and i still like all the singles i mean i have to say like i while i didn't listen to ray of light as a full album until a lot later like during college these were the madonna singles that for whatever reason i was like the most immediately excited about like i by this time i was really into alanis morissette alanis morissette on the album after jagged little pill went to india had her like vision quest thing came back and her album after that is like 80 minutes long and has at least like one chanting thing like it's it's seen by many as like a sophomore slump but i think it was kind of genius and expanded on everything i ever liked about alanis morissette this and is the madonna podcast Wait, what is it? Oh, I loved the single Frozen. Frozen was definitely popular with my goth friends. <laughs> and honestly, so I, while I was never overtly goth, I was spiritually goth. <laughs> I had a real affinity for their whole outlook on things. And I just loved the visual sensibility of this, but also the kind of icy sonic palette that she was drawing from with the kind of electronic elements that are woven into this and woven into all these songs. You only see what your eyes want to see. How can life be what you want it to be? 
how funny is it that like you could be goth and still be like, yeah, the new Madonna single. Like, <laughs> she got very new agey and just tried on a lot of different hats with this album. Literally and figuratively, yeah. I think. Was it hats, The Power guys. of Goodbye, the Felicity song? It was. <laughs> so, I like that. I like that song. It's a beautiful song, but it is kind of ruined by me <laughs> because I watched Felicity, so I literally heard this song every time and I just picture like super curly hair and like a nostalgic kind of wistful look toward the New York City skyline <laughs> that Carrie Russell gives in the opening. So I can't like listen to that song and not think of Felicity, even though I think it's a good song. I don't like the Paula Cole song from Dawson's Creek at all, but it also is like horrendously ruined by knowing it's from Dawson's <laughs> Creek. Yeah, no, I mean, well, and this is, that's one of my least favorite songs on the album. There's just something about the repetition of the verse that kind of grates on my ears there there are some aspects some kind of there's some stylistic things she's trying with her voice that i don't think i'll fully succeed um but i do love the song drowned world substitute for love i think it's mm-hmm. such a beautiful intro to the album i think it showcases the new restraint and control she has over her voice because her voice has always been very powerful and she's always had a really good vibrato but in ray of light specifically she sings she starts to sing some songs flat with no vibrato and it just makes it a very diff- different experience listening to madonna sing madonna I really like Ray of Light, and apparently that was a lullaby that she would sing to her daughter. And I think that it's really important to note that she, like, became a mother, and in her personal life, she went through, like, a whole transitional thing into this new kind of Madonna. And it does seem like a very mature album. She was in, so she was into, like, daily yoga practice. She was studying Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, um... But this was not a put-on. This was not just, like, a momentary thing. That Really, she very much changed her entire lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, she withdrew from the road. She, like, in a lot of ways, became kind of hermit-ish and, like, not a party girl. Just really wanted to make something of a domestic life, whatever version of that Madonna would have. I do think on this album there is a lot of actual real maturity, and she's seen more of life so she has more to say but also she's like using these kind of sonic experimentations to do that like i the ray of light definitely got played out like hell but that song is so good so really fresh I feel it's like. so fr- like it sounds like it could have been made yesterday mm-hmm. i feel like this whole album kind of does like, oh the, to- the whole album absolutely like musically yeah. it definitely does it's not dated at all it's not dated at all Like, it's been 20 years now because it's the anniversary, and that's kind of crazy because so much from that era does sound really dated that it's just, like, amazing that she was able to 
capture something that she probably helped usher in, like these sounds into the mainstream that are then like now kind of still here. Well, and it's also, I again, I, I think her process of accumulating sounds and melodies to put into her nest and make songs with is an aspect of other songwriters that gets lauded and awarded and respected where it gets Madonna denigrated and called a ripoff artist because there were groups like Portishead that were huge at this time and like there was a tr- another trip hop artist Tricky who was like gigantic especially like in in the UK And so, like, these trip-hop sounds really are so strong on this album. But it's just interesting, because even just one album before this, she's working with Babyface. And, like, that album is a really legitimate, like, R&B album. And also, like, pulled in those electronic influences. But, yeah, I I just think the construction of Ray of Light makes it not a kind of song that she would have released before this. This was also marking a different production style, because this producer, William Orbit, was using Pro Tools. And, like, back at the time, their computers were shitty and would break down all the time so the recording process was drawn out it would just break down and they'd have to rebuild things but it really affects the way that this album shapes up and it affects the way that the music is made yeah i do think madonna i mean she obviously gets inspired by different sounds and then kind of repurposes them in her own way but she does so before the mainstream gets them like i feel like a lot of her songs and albums like it takes a while to get used to them and they sound really strange at first. Like we were talking about the song music, which came from her next album and how none of us really liked it at the time. And now I think we got kind of more used to that because that, that style of music became more popular. Like she's really at the forefront of things that I don't think she's necessarily causing them to happen, but she knows that they're going to happen before most of us do. And kind of is a, the pop introduction of that to the mainstream. At least she was. I don't think she really does that anymore, but... My last favorite song on this album is the closing song, Mer Girl. That's the one I always put on before I'm going out, like, getting me in the mood for a club. <laughs> what? <laughs> is this club a bathtub with razor blades? Yes. Am I remembering the wrong song? <laughs> no, that, oh. that's Barbie Girl. Oh. <laughs> Life in the Ocean is also fantastic. You got confused because of Aqua. Very clever. You guys, water really throws Chris off. You gotta be careful. It reminded me in some ways of the acapella song at the end of Alanis Morissette's album, Jagged Little Pill. This is the Madonna podcast. (laughs) This is the Madonna Little Pill. I mean, most of it has instrumentation, but it's very minimal. Yeah, it's like very ambient, very minimal. The power of it is almost entirely like Madonna's voice. And the way that it ends is with the line, I ran and I ran, I'm still running away. And it's just really fucking haunting, and it ends the album on such a, like, a simultaneously deep but kind of unsettled note. Um, Especially, like, listening to it as a whole album in sequence, I was really impressed. Um, Not just by the kind of the ways the production techniques pull the songs together, but also especially by that closing song. Yeah, I think that that unsettled nature really leads you to want to, like, start the album over again immediately. Oh, absolutely. And gives you, like, a little something extra to think about, where it's, like, you could listen to it through a second time and now kind of have that, like, almost like rewatching a movie, where it's, like, oh, the ending was this kind of weird thing, so now I want to rewatch the movie and see if that was, like, present all along. Like, I feel like that's the kind of sense I get from this. I ran and I ran 
burning flesh, her rotting bones, her decay. I ran and I ran. I'm still running away. I was the one, I guess, who actually like listened to this album when it came out.、Uh, it was my friend Tiffany who introduced me, and obviously, I was、uh, very aware of Madonna. And I mostly knew her from Evita at that point because that was the only like Madonna album that I had listened to at this point. I heard this and I really liked it. I, it was just really different and and unique, and that that's what got me into Madonna and got me to buy the Immaculate Collection first, and then Bedtime Stories and Erotica. So I have a lot of affection for this as my first introduction into Madonna, even. Though It's kind of a weird introduction because it's such a departure for her from so much else, and yet it's kind of the familiar Madonna to me. Avita and then this are kind of the I don't know softer, motherly Madonna, where it's like, and then I explored her as kind of a sexual like rebel. But yeah, it's it's kind of backwards. So. To me, this is like home base Madonna, and then it like goes out from there. The other album from this era that she didn't tour for was Bedtime Stories, and the reason why is because she got the role of Evita, and so she had to do that instead of going on a tour. And I feel like that's maybe the reason why Bedtime Stories isn't as known as even Erotica, which I think we all agreed was like musically not as good as Bedtime Stories. Because she's such a video artist and a visual artist, she needs kind of that tour to kind of like cement these things in the public consciousness. And because like that album didn't get that, I feel like it's one of the ones that people for- could easily forget or would be like, "What singles are on that?" Whereas you know, like a prayer or even you know, True Blue is- are much more I think remembered as Madonna albums. And especially, you know, Ray of Light as well. You know, I think this is very much an album album in a way that almost no other Madonna albums are. It's definitely something to listen through. You're not gonna like skip around to different songs really because you're getting a lot of mood, similar mood out of each track. There's not a lot of catchy hooks in this. Like, there's a couple of songs that are more radio friendly, and they were the singles, but. Overall, like it's more of an experience to have and sit down and like. Yeah, well, and I mean, like a song like Frozen is so unMadonna-ish. It's like it's almost like medieval music, you know. So it's just really in- it's so interesting to me, like in retrospect, that this of all Madonna albums is like her best-selling one. But at the same time, it like totally makes sense because there there is such a strong. Kind of narrative sensibility of the kind of person that this is an expression of. I think it also didn't alienate anybody because it wasn't super niche like Broadway. It wasn't super sexual.、Um, That's really true. Kids could、That's、enjoy、really、it. Adults could enjoy it. People like my husband is not a Madonna fan, but he was like, "Oh, I like Ray of Light." Because people that weren't even Madonna fans, like there's something about it that it wasn't so in your face. That people that were probably casual or not Madonna fans could also enjoy it too. So I think it just widened the appeal of of who would like it. And there was a lot of like, there's some like club elements to it, like world music. So I'm sure it was a huge hit in Europe as well. It、um, was the、yeah. same era as Pure Moods and all that kind of.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that it was her best selling album. Yeah, she had that orca flow, and it was really good. Call back. <laughs> <laughs> But in a way, I feel like that's a little bit sad because, like, it's it is kind of like it's it's a personal album. Like, it's not like she was 
not being herself on this album. Like, I think she very much was. And there's still a lot of sensuality. It's just not that overt sex. It's more just kind of a more mature, again, like, you yeah. know, sexual vibe. Well, and it's like I haven't dropped this name in this episode, but... There's Madonna. A, yeah. No, Kate Bush is another songwriter who often like self-produced her own work. And like listening to the really early Madonna stuff reminded me somewhat of her. And she had like a much higher pitched voice back then. But especially in like Ray of Light, like the stuff I love about Kate Bush, like that kind of sense of motherliness, <laughs> whatever that sensibility is, like it comes through really well in things that are pop songs. But yeah, I find it a little bit like sad in a way that she had to kind of become this like holistic like mother figure in order for people to finally accept her and it, that people couldn't quite embrace like the more jagged edges of her and that she had to be like this kind of softer more radio I don't think that's fair she's a huge star <laughs> like from day yeah. one <laughs> but to win the Grammys to be like respected as an artist she had to do this whereas I feel like there's so much uh, that she did before this that was also respectable and respectable in a way that it was really pushing boundaries and that I mean she's obviously pretty much the most influential pop musician I think yeah. I think every female artist since Madonna has something you know to thank her for like I don't know about all that but like she Becky's point is valid which is that like by this by the time Ray of Light came out her Titanic career was built on the exact image you're talking about so I think if anything it might have been more of a risk for her to, like, eschew all of the overt sexuality. Because, again, that was part of the formula. It's like, you, you've got your Madonna, and part of that formula is you you got the sexy in it. Well, it was more of a risk based on who she was, but it's not risky music. There's nothing, you know, kind of, like, not... I mean, it, it's definitely, I mean, like, like... Like you were saying, though, there are fewer hooks in it. That Like, it is... I would say it is a little risky. It's, it is a little riskier. I mean, I think... The Power of Goodbye is, like, a super straightforward... Yeah. The first word of the first single of this album is Zephyr. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, she wasn't trying to be... She's not, like, aiming for mainstream appeal. Yeah. No, I don't think she was, but I think that's kind of, like, the irony is that she achieved the most mainstream success she's ever had by, like, kind of, I don't know, softening up. Like, I really like this album. I, I think it's really interesting because of who she is. But I don't know that I would find it that interesting unless it was kind of a response to what had come before. Hmm. I think that makes it much more interesting. And I appreciate Madonna as an artist more for the boundaries that she pushed rather than like a kind of safer choice. Like my kind of, as much as I like this album, my approach to Ray of Light is kind of, you know, when your friend discovers yoga and Kabbalah and you're like, well, I'm really happy for you, but you used to be really fun. But it doesn't mean it's sad. I think that it's really interesting that she was all about a certain image and she decided to flip it and people were really intrigued by that. I don't think it's like sad, like, oh, she had to be a mom to be appreciated. I well, think that and it, then it's also like, it's just funny because I was reading about the way that she thought about the success of Ray of Light. And it's like, eventually, like, she's like, fuck it, I want to party. And, like, that's where a lot of the spirit of music, that follow-up album, comes from. Like, it, and it, you hear it in the music that, like, she wanted. She was like, fuck it, let's go to the club now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think we agree, Chris, that, like, she was sanding off edges to do that. 
I, I don't. I think it was kind of an organic growth of where she was coming from, just previously musically, but also where she was in life. Yeah, no, I think it was totally organic. In fact, I think this album gets a little more credit than it deserves for like softening her up because I really feel like you hear and see the beginnings of this on Bedtime Stories, like the songs Sanctuary and Bedtime Story. And even Secret. Yeah, and so I feel like she was going that way anyway. She was kind of rejecting all of that erotica stuff on the album, and that's a big transition album. And then this was kind of like the full-on, like, here it is, I've, I've changed. But I do think that that was part of a longer trajectory. So guys, what is your favorite album from, of these four, and what is your favorite Madonna album in general? Ray of Light and Ray of Light. Bedtime Stories. For both? Um, yeah, I think so. Oh, I, I think Ray of Light of these four definitely holds up the best. Um, I love Confessions on a Dance Floor. And I actually, what you were talking about with Ray of Light, I would say that is how I feel about Confessions on a Dance Floor, where I can listen to it from start to finish. And it helps that it's kind of like a DJ set where it never ends. Each song bleeds into the next. But I listen to that as an album, start to finish. Song-wise, I think I go with, like, Like a Prayer is, like, her most, like, gripping song to me. It's oh, just, like, I think it's that's such a great an word. amazing song. Like, it's just, it feels religious to me. No, totally. Totally. Even when it's used to sell Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Hung Up from Confessions is one of my other favorite songs of hers. It's just, you know, as a song that I'm going to put on, like, I'm not going to put on a lot of Ray of Light songs just to, like, you know, hear one track, but I'll put on Hung Up a lot. Hung Up is my number one most played song on iTunes. <laughs> well done. Do we have any final reflections on this experience of revisiting Madge? Yeah, this was the first time that I actually really like listened to her as more than a singles artist, I think. You know, I've always appreciated her and liked the songs, but I really kind of delved into her, like her personal life and how that was reflected through this. And I did just really end up appreciating even Erotica, which I never thought was a great album. But just like I remember the early 90s, you know, it was the era of AIDS. And there was a very like sex equals death kind of vibe around sex. And I kind of appreciate her for just like kind of spitting in the face of that and trying to remind people that sex is fun or, you know, just responding to critics and 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 just all the, I mean, you could talk for hours about how much of a feminist icon she is. And I've talked for maybe (laughs) one collective hour we could talk for hours but you know i just think she did so much for women and like women speaking their minds and it wasn't always accepted from her but i really do feel like she was one of the first people to really like say a lot of these things and present this imagery and she really took a lot of criticism for it and so i just came out of this really respecting her so much as a more than just an artist but also just as a like icon of pop culture who did i think much more than just musically influential i think she was really influential on the culture itself I agree. I felt really strongly after watching Truth or Dare. And I like her, but something about watching her and that and just how she acted and her work ethic and her drive and how she treated other people and was funny and maybe just really like her. I would recommend you watch that. And I would recommend you watch your music videos. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally agreed. And I, I, I did just come away with it with so much more respect for her as uh, a songwriter, especially as a singer, as a relentless self-reinventor. Um, 
also as a collaborator in all those kinds of ways, like both with her dancers and with producers and stuff. Um, yeah, it was, in, and I, I do maintain that the albums have a lot of unevenness to them, um, but it's so interesting to like chart the progress of someone who's so clearly like always searching for something different. And that's all the erotica stuff we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast, which has been a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. On the next episode, we will really tie the room together by revisiting the finest film ever made, The Big Lebowski. I guess we don't have to now. We've, <laughs> we've decided it's the finest film ever made. This is going to be a solo venture. I'm just going to ramble into a microphone for six hours about my love for the dude and all things dude. <laughs> well, if you've enjoyed listening to us, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and please subscribe to us on iTunes, but also leave us a lovely review of five stars or more. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm not your bitch. Don't hang your shit on me. And I'm going bananas. <laughs> <laughs>